Matthew 15, 1 to 20 is a passage for religious people to pay special attention to, especially people who attend a traditional church like a cathedral. For it's a passage that deals with two interwoven subjects, that is, traditions and cleansing. I'm going to look at both of them in turn. First then, the question of traditions. For that's where chapter 15 commences with the Jerusalemite Pharisees' question concerning the disciples' failure to observe the traditions of the elders in verse 2. Why do your disciples break with the, the traditions of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. The central point of the passage is the question of the place of traditions of the elders. Uh, the presenting issue is the question of washing hands. It's a particular example of a wider, more central issue, breaking traditions. To understand the Pharisees' question and Jesus' response to it, we need to understand three things, the history, the prophecy, and the conflict. Firstly, then, the history. The Pharisees are no part of the Old Testament. They grew up between the Testaments. Uh, they were a group who had a fanaticism about keeping the law. They were lay businessmen, middle-class religious moralists who were greatly respected, if not feared, in their own day. They were conservative believers in the prophets. They believed, for example, in the resurrection. But they weren't God-planted. And unbeknown to them and their followers... They were blind guides leading people astray. For that's how Jesus describes them in verse 13. He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be moved on. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Worse than that, as if you could think worse than that, worse than that, they were spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, and secondly, therefore, notice the prophecy. It's quoted for us in verses 7 to 9. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Isaiah spoke not only to his own day, though he spoke to that day as well, hundreds of years before Jesus, but also to Jesus' day and the example of it in Jesus' day, the Pharisees. For he addressed the abiding problem of religious people. For he foresaw that this was going to happen in Jesus' day as it will happen in every day, including our day. For the prophecy of Isaiah is not just for his contemporaries, it's God's word for the Pharisees, it's God's word for Isaiah's day, it's God's word for our day. It's so easy to talk the talk without walking the walk, as we would put it. We say one thing, but our hearts are quite different. Which brings us to the third thing to understand, that is the conflict. For this kind of hypocrisy brings with it a whole range of conflict. Conflict between God's word and human tradition. Conflicts within ourselves. And conflicts between ourselves, between those who would follow God's word and those who would follow the traditions of men. See, there's always a conflict between God's word and human traditions. For even though the word of God is breathed out by God and inspired by his spirit, our and our traditions 
the expression of sinful minds inspired by our own lies, we still prefer our traditions over God's word. We know this is God's word, we know our traditions are our own sinful constructions, but we like ours rather than God's. This has always been a problem. We prefer human wisdom to God's wisdom, especially our own wisdom to God's wisdom, or at least the wisdom of our own culture to God's wisdom. In the example of the Pharisees, Jesus points out how their traditions meant that they could avoid financing and therefore honouring their parents, thus making void the word of God. You see it in verse 6. And the man who does such need not honour his father. For the sake of your traditions, you have made the word of God void. This love of traditions also sets up conflicts within themselves as they profess allegiance to God's word while actually rejecting his teaching. The prophet called it a conflict between lips and heart. For the Pharisees wanted to acknowledge obedience to the Bible but they didn't want to do what it says. This love of human traditions also sets up conflict between those who want to obey the traditions of men and those who want to obey God's word. The traditionalists are always threatened by the changes that God's word brings to people. As Jesus put it, you can't put new wine in old wine skins, it always leads to a split. And you can't sew a new patch onto an old garment, it always leads to a tear. And this split, this tear between Jesus and his disciples on the one hand and the Pharisees and the scribes and their traditions on the other hand was the split and the tear that would ultimately lead to his crucifixion. Friends, what we have here in Matthew 15 is the Pharisees' love of tradition over the word of God. What we have here is the problem that has been repeatedly played out over history in principle and to the very practice of today. Let's look quickly at the the history, the principle and the practice. The history is simple. For we can find the descendants of the Pharisees in every age and every country, in every denomination and in every church be it Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism, be it Anglicanism or Protestant Evangelicalism, human traditions develop. And traditions take unto themselves their own authority, a fixed importance that cannot be challenged and will in the end overturn the authority of the Word of God. Usually these traditions give more power and importance to human leaders And so human leaders love them. Some people even argue for tradition. So Roman Catholicism sees scripture as just part of tradition and must be read as part of tradition. And some Anglo-Catholics like to talk of Anglicanism as based on a a three-legged stool uh, on, on scripture, tradition and reason. Three legs that hold up the stool But of course, such a stool is always unstable because scripture is a much longer, stronger leg than either tradition or reason. It's not a way to build a stool that you'd ever want to sit on, which may explain modern Anglicanism. Let me stick with Anglicanism for a while so that no one thinks I'm just being a bigoted person. I'm attacking my own 
And remember, friends, if this is what I think of my own, can you imagine what I think of yours? The scripture teaches us that temple is in heaven, where the one true priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, has offered up the one true sacrifice for all time, and where we worship God in spirit and in truth. But Anglo-Catholic traditionalists teach that the church building is the house of God, where we go and worship him. And as we enter into it, we're coming into the temple of God to worship him. And they talk of the altar and the sanctuary. Uh, I visited St Paul's Cathedral a few years ago, etched on the very new, wonderful glass revolving doors that they have to keep the cold of London out, is a misquote of a verse from Genesis 28:17. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Five pounds entrance. Or take the issue that's been debated a few years ago in our own synod about who can and can't celebrate the Lord's Supper. Traditionalists say only the priest can celebrate the Lord's Supper. But nowhere in the Bible is there such a restriction or such a command. But by it, they have been able to reconstruct a priesthood other than the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, other than the priesthood of all believers. So by a tradition, they've undermined the word of God. That's what happens with traditions all the time. They undermine the word of God. The basic principle is the inevitable conflict between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. It's obvious when people remove part of God's word. Uh, For example, they don't believe in miracles. If you don't believe in miracles, then you're not going to believe in the resurrection. You can call people preaching like that, preaching the gospel minus. That is, the gospel minus the resurrection, the gospel minus the miracles. And the gospel minus always distorts the gospel. You can't have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and leave bits out and still have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel minus is not the gospel. However, it's not so obvious when people want to add to part of the gospel. Add things like Christians must confess their sins to a priest, or Christians must say the rosary daily, or Christians must not eat uh, meat on Friday. That we can call the gospel plus. Now the gospel plus appears strict but really only provides loopholes by which we can avoid the real requirements of the word of God to change our hearts and lives. The gospel plus appears to be godly but really by adding to the word of God it undermines the very gospel it appears to honour. For human wisdom is always marred by sin and so speaks well to our sinful hearts. We love what it has to say because we made it up. But it will always be in conflict with the word of God. The gospel plus distorts the gospel. The gospel plus is not the gospel. If you have to pray through Mary then you have a different gospel than the gospel which says Jesus is the one true mediator between God and man, that we do not need any other mediator. In fact, you undermine the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the requirement to be praying to someone other than Jesus. That is, the gospel minus anything is not the gospel. And the gospel plus anything is not the gospel. Either way, it's not the gospel. So there'll always be conflict between human tradition, which is the plus that people put onto the gospel, and God's gospel. Conflict between the observable, external, trivial rules and patterns of religious traditionalism and the real spiritual relationship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Conflict between those who want to hold to the traditions and those who wish to follow God's word wherever it may lead them. Tradition has great power. It speaks to our safety, our security, even our nostalgia. See, in a fast-moving world where the culture of my childhood is under constant change and threat at every point, I want to be able to return to when to when people played sport for the love of the game or when they represented their community or their state or their nation in, in ovals that were named by the community generally or by their location rather than those that are named as products by advertisers. When they tell me the football's on at such and such a stadium, I don't know where they're talking about. I don't go. It's quite safe because I wouldn't know where to go because it's named after some bank or some cigarette company or so other. But it's no longer ours. It's theirs. And it's no longer a game. It's a professional entertainment. And it's no longer provided by us for us but by the gambling community who like to tell us that's the case. I want to be able to return to the, the sense of the rhythm of life of weeks and days and seasons and years. I want to return to the politeness of good manners and the stability of families when people kept their sex lives private and their marriages public instead of discussing their sex lives publicly and sneaking off privately to live together. And so therefore I want my church to be like it was in my childhood. At least... Can I keep that part of the world constant? I want to enter into the eternal truths of God and have a sense that nothing important is changing. And so I want to have a church where at least here, everything I was raised in is the same as my childhood. Tradition, you see, is very powerful. Terrific hold on our hearts. Very strong. And so the conflict of God's word and human traditions, the conflict in my heart, the conflict between traditionalists and those who want to keep God's word and go wherever he leads, is a very powerful conflict. I feel, by the way, that the microphone has changed levels or something and I'm shouting a lot more. Is it working better or worse than it was before? Are you hearing me in the back row all right and comfortably? Well, I'll keep bellowing then, that's okay. The second issue in this passage, is the presenting problem of the Pharisees' tradition, namely, cleansing. It's about traditions, that's the big thing, but the presenting issue is cleansing, washing. It's the heart. The issue is foreshadowed in chapter 14, verse 36, just the end of the previous chapter, where they, 
implored that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. For the sick people were reaching out to touch the fringes of Jesus' garments for healing and they were healed. Now within the understanding of Israel, to touch or to be touched was itself to be defiled. To touch the dead person would defile you. To touch a dying person, to touch a sick person would defile you. You'd be contaminated, corrupted. Now, we can understand this in terms of health and, and hygiene and contagion. Touching a contagious person can pass the disease on to you. And so we are very concerned about too much physical contact. But within Israel, it wasn't a health issue as it is with us. It was a religious symbolism a symbol of our spiritual state of being defiled or corrupted by sinfulness and the judgment of God. It was a symbol that they didn't understand for they were more concerned to maintain the symbol than the thing that it symbolised. They were more concerned with washing their hands of physical dirt than cleansing their hearts of spiritual sinfulness. The symbol washing your hands, of the defiled heart. Which is more important, the symbol or the thing symbolised? Friends, this is typical of religious and traditional symbolism. It's always easier to fulfil the rules about the symbols than to deal with what they symbolise. It's always easier to concentrate on the symbols than to deal with the thing symbolised. It's easy to own a university sweatshirt much easier than actually studying at a university. That's a much harder thing. All you need is an auntie to travel it through England and buy an Oxford University sweatshirt for you and you can come back and walk around with Oxford University on the front of your shirt for the rest of your life, day in, day out, and you've never even left Sydney, let alone go to Oxford, let alone ever study in Oxford. All you have is an auntie who passed by. It's always easier to carry around a gym bag than it is to work out at the gym. Although that will be a little bit more obvious over time than your failure to study at Oxford. It's always easier to wear the symbols of being a man of God, a robe or a clerical collar or a little cross on your shirt or a cross around your neck or a fish sticker on your car than to actually be a man of God. The true sign of being a Christian is not the jewellery that we have on our body, but the love that we have in our heart. As our Lord Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. I'd prefer to buy a cross. It's a lot cheaper and easier than loving you, Mob. You see, that's, it's always easier to have the symbol than to have the reality. So we see in this passage, the Pharisees' concern was with their hand. For them, what you touch, what you handle, defiles you in the touching. See, the leper of the ancient world had to call out as he went around, unclean, unclean, for his disease could easily spread to others, and so he had to keep a distance from them. But it was more than that. Being a leper, he was under the judgment of God. And for anybody who touched him would share, would be defiled by the touch of the leper. But Jesus reached out and touched the leper and the leper 
was cleansed. That is extraordinary, you see. Instead of their defilement coming upon Jesus, Jesus' holiness and cleansing came upon them. So as people pressed around him to touch him, they were not defiling him. He was healing them. And the Pharisees were concerned about the mouth, concerned about what you eat, and more importantly, what you didn't eat. Fasting is part of religious traditions in, in nearly all the world's religions. Uh, Christianity with its Lent, um, Islam with its, uh, with its fasting, uh, the Jews, of course, avoiding pork, as the Muslims do, uh, the Hindus avoiding meat. Uh, we also, as a culture, we avoid eating horse or eating dog. Frankly, I'm not too keen on eating snails either. But Jesus says the important defiling things don't go into the mouth. The important defiling things come out of the mouth. It's not the food that defiles you as it enters in, but your words and speech defile you as they go outwards. So verse 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. See, what goes in in verse 17 is food and it's passed into the stomach and then it's expelled. It's a very polite euphemism. What comes out is speech and action. It comes from within a person, from the heart of the person and it's an expression of what is really the true person. So for Jesus, what matters isn't so much the hands or the mouth, but the heart. You see the climax of it in the passage in verses 18. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile a person. Here is the real concern. Here is the reality of, of sinfulness. It's not in symbols. It's not in external rules and regulations that you must keep. But the reality of a fallen sinful heart, the reality of our persons, conformed to the ways of this world under the power of sin and open to all the suggestions of Satan. So powerful are his suggestions that we think we're basically good people with a few minor blemishes. Nobody's perfect, we say, when the reality is everybody's corrupt through and through. The reality is everybody's corrupt. That's what the reality is. But we say, well, nobody's perfect because we think we're really good with minor blemishes. Just, just short of perfection is where we are. But that's not where we are. Here is the distinctive and consistent teaching of scripture all people everywhere are sinful by nature it's from within us it's not external to us it's from within us in the very heart of who we are as his people that we are corrupt and do evil things that we will do anything good is miraculous and out of character but that we do evil is normal and to be expected 
Nobody ever has to teach me evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. I can work all those things out just by myself. And these are the things that make me corrupt, that defile me as a person. Not what I eat, what I wear, whether I use knife and fork the right way or vote the right way at the next election, but evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Now, my friends, this is a passage for defiled people like you and me. You may not know that's what you are, but here in this passage tells you the truth about what you are and about what other people are as well. You see, you should never be surprised when people try to take advantage of you, whether they lie to you, when they steal from you, slander you or abuse you. Never be surprised. When you left your home today, did you lock your house? When you left your car, did you lock the door? Do you give away your PIN numbers to your bank accounts? Do you sign legal documents without calling your solicitor? Well, if so, my dear friend, you're fools. <laughs> Any of those things foolish to do? Why is it foolish to do those things? Well, because of the nature of the human heart. You know you can't trust people. You know there are thieves, there are liars, there are fraudsters, there are tricksters. You can't trust people. You can only trust them to sin. You can't trust them to do the right thing. You already know that truth about other people. Can you not learn that same truth about yourself? Why are you surprised about yourself? The main reason I haven't sinned more is lack of opportunity and lack of pressure. I find I sin more when I'm tired and when I'm bored than when I'm not. It's got very little to do necessarily with my moral character. It's got to do with who I am as a person. Place me in a situation of pressure. Give me the opportunity to relieve the pressure by sin and my natural instinct will take over to do the wrong thing. And I'm not Robinson Crusoe in this, my friends. You're with me in it. Now, some of you know it only too well. For there are within your hearts the dark secrets of the things that you've done, the things that we've done, the things that we shouldn't have done, but have done, and the things that we've failed to do that really we should have done. We know about the defiling corruption of our hearts. And we don't know what to do about it. We live with the conflict of our hearts and our lips. For we know what's right, but don't do it. And we know what's wrong. Keep doing it. We confess our belief in God. I mean, we're here studying the Bible in the middle of the week. But our hearts condemn us sometimes, for we feel the hypocrisy of our lives. My friends, is this you? Then look again at this passage. For all who came to Jesus were healed. Even those who but touched the fringe of his garments. Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Look to Jesus, for in his death he carried your defilement, and in his resurrection he took it all away, and by his spirit you can be washed clean. Look to Jesus, for that is what he came to deal with our defilement. See, 
if you don't know about Jesus, you pretend you're not defiled because what else can you do with it? But if you know about the forgiveness that is available by his death and resurrection, you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I have done wrong and I have failed to do right. That's the truth of what I am, of who I am. But thanks be to God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, I am forgiven and changed. Let me show you how to do that, how to get to that point. It's on the back of the outline here, in the little box down the bottom, that there's a prayer that I'm going to conclude with this day. I often conclude with this prayer. Those who are regulars know I do. It's the prayer that actually takes upon yourself Jesus. It's the prayer that reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. For it says in the first paragraph, I know I'm not worthy. I know I need forgiveness. And the second paragraph thanks God for what he has done in sending his son to die for me and rise again, that I might be forgiven and given a new life. And the third paragraph is the prayer of the prayer. Please forgive me, change me, that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. As I pray this prayer out loud, I invite you to join with me in praying it in the quietness of your own heart and mind. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gifts of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.